You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven Podcast with LD and TJ. Can you dig that, baby? <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I'm your host, LD. With me always is TJ. How are oh, you? Hey. How are you doing, TJ? I'm surviving. So this one's going to be a little bit of a longer episode. I'm really sorry, but there was just so much information. And Tracy is mad. She's if you could, if looks could kill, man, I'd be gone. I'm not quite glaring at you. So today we're going to be covering the life of Karen Carpenter, and my sources. Are ridiculous today. My sources were, of course, Wikipedia. You think? <laughs> the New World Encyclopedia, uh, Karen Blixen, Karen Carpenter's Tragic Story by Randy Schmidt uh, from The Guardian, Made in America, which is the media notes, um, A&M Records Spotlight, Fort Lauderdale News uh, from May 11th, 1980, via newspaper.com. I have International Dateline Cashbox 40, and then A Brother Remembers by Richard Carpenter from November 21st, 1983, and their personal website, which is richardandkarencarpenter.com. So let's crack into it. Karen Carpenter was born Karen Ann Carpenter on March 20th, 1950 in New Haven, Connecticut, and Karen was the daughter of Agnes Renoir. Nay Tatum. So I, I think I've got that last name right, but I don't I don't know. Her father was Harold Bertram Carter, and Harold was born in China because his parents were missionaries. So his parents were extremely religious. Harold was a printer by trade and was known to have been a collector of music albums and was this is actually really cool. He was said to have hung a swing in the basement of their home so the children would be exposed to music while they played. And they could hear artists like Les Paul, Mary Ford, Spike Jones, and Patti Page, all figures that would play a huge role in the development of the Carpenter's music. And Karen's mother was reportedly a domineering mother, which may have caused some of her children's self-destructive behavior later in life. Carpenter had a complicated relationship with her parents, and they had hoped that Richard's musical talents would be recognized and that he would enter the music business but were not prepared for her success. So they they really wanted Richard to be the one that succeeded in music and not really Karen. And you're going to kind of see that this is a pattern with her mom yeah. that she really, from what I gathered, it she really didn't like, what's the word? Support? Yeah, support her musical path, so... Well, wouldn't that, with that time frame, though, wouldn't it, it would have made sense that she would be more supportive of her daughter finding a husband and having a family than having a career and be successful on her own. Yeah. So, but what's weird is she actually continued to live with them until 1974. And we always have to remember, though, that Karen only lived to the age of 32. So in regard, she's very much like Patsy Cline. Yeah. So her success was only like seven or eight years. Yeah, Yeah, it was very short-lived. So in 1976, the Carpenters bought two Century City apartments, which she actually combined into one. And then the doorbell that chimed was the opening notes of We Only Just Begun. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So she collected Disney memorabilia, and she liked to play softball and baseball. And growing up, she had played baseball with other children on the street. And she was actually picked before her brother was for games. Nice. So she studied baseball statistics carefully and became a fan of the New York Yankees bandwagoner. In the 
In the early 1970s, she would become a pitcher on the Celebrity All-Star softball team. So she had some friends. Uh, maybe you've heard of them. Her friends were Petula Clark, Olivia Newton-John, and Dionne Warwick. Two of the three, yes. Who don't you know? Petunia. Petula. Petula? Oh, yeah. You know who she is. Do I? When you're alone and life is making you lonely. Oh, you yeah. Okay. Go. That's Petula Clark. Downtown. <laughs> <laughs> While she was enjoying success as a woman drummer in what was primarily an all-male occupation, Carpenter was not supportive of the women's liberation movement, saying that she believed a wife should cook for her husband and that when married, this is what she planned to do. So Carpenter had one sibling that we already mentioned, and his name was Richard, and he plays a pivotal role in her whole life. He is kind of the one that started yeah, you the whole music. Yeah, yeah. So... Richard was her elder by three years, and he developed an interest in music at a very early age and became a piano prodigy. <laughs> I thought this was cute. Karen's first words were bye-bye and stop it, the latter in <laughs> response to Richard. So she enjoyed dancing and at age four was enrolled in tap dance and ballet classes. So she's getting into the arts very early as well. So Karen moved with her family to Downey, California in 1963. Have you ever been to Downey? No. Karen. Entered Downey High School in 1964 at age 14 and was a year younger than her classmates because she is really smart. And she joined the high school band <laughs> initially to avoid gym class. Oh, yeah, I've done that. <laughs> Very weird. So she joined the school band and Bruce Gifford, the conductor, I love this, who had previously taught her older brother Richard, first gave her the glockenspiel. Oh, my God. <laughs> An instrument that she disliked. And after admiring the performance of her friend and classmate. What? Yeah. You think? Like. So she really disliked it. And after admiring a performance of her friend and classmate, drummer Frankie Chavez, who had been playing from an early age and idolized drummer Buddy Rich, she asked if she could play those instead. Karen always considered herself a drummer who sang, and she would prefer Ludwig drums, including the Ludwig Super Sensitive Snare, which she favored greatly. I don't know, drums. So Carpenter wanted a Ludwig set because it was used by her favorite drummer, Joe Morello, and Ringo Starr. Nice. Frankie Chavez persuaded her family to buy her a $300 set, which is now the equivalent of $2,400 in last year's money. Yeah. So I don't know how much inflation is that much, but it's it's still it's still over $2,400. That is so much. Uh, she got the Ludwig kit. And he began to teach her how to play, and her enthusiasm for drumming led to teach herself how to play complicated lines and studying the differences between traditional and matched grip. Within a year, she could play the complex time signatures, such as the 5-4 in Dave Brubeck's Take 5. So Karen said in an interview, I started right off playing and the time signatures came naturally. I don't know how. I mean, I felt so comfortable when I picked up a pair of sticks. Karen was initially nervous about performing in public, but she said that she was too involved in the music to worry about it. Her first band was 2 Plus 2, an all-girl trio formed with her friends from Downey High. And they actually split up after she suggested that her brother join the band. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so in 1965, Karen Richard and his college friend Wes Jacobs, a bassist and tuba player, formed the Richard Carpenter Trio. Richard was immediately impressed with his sister's musical talent, saying that she would speedily maneuver the sticks as if she was born in a drum factory. The band rehearsed daily and played jazz clubs 
at night. And it should be pointed out that at this this time, Karen actually wasn't singing. Instead, they had a, a girl named Margaret Shanner guest on some of the numbers. So it was basically all instrumental, and then occasionally they would bring Margaret. They would bring Margaret, excuse me, Margaret in on some of the numbers. The trio was signed, a con- like they signed a contract with RCA Records and recorded two instrumentals, but they were never released. This is kind of a big watershed moment for them. They were actually at the Battle of the Bands at the Hollywood Bowl in 1966. How old is the Hollywood Bowl? Old. It seems old. Like the architecture seems really old, too. 1922. Yay, so I was kind of right. You were right. Yeah. Yeah. 1922. Wow. So at the Battle of the Bands at the Hollywood Bowl in 1966, the trio won first place and landed the contract with RCA Records. Reviewing the show in the Los Angeles Times... Leonard Feather wrote, The musical surprise of the evening was the trio of Richard Carpenter, a remarkably original soloist who won awards as the best instrumentalist and leader of the best combo. Flanking his piano were Karen Carpenter, his talented 16-year-old sister at the drums, and bassist Wes Jacobs, who doubled amusingly and confidently on the tuba. Amusingly? After they had won the whole Hollywood Bowl thing. They walked out into the parking lot and this guy, Neely Plum, approached them and they're like, hey, he, he was like, hey, congratulations. Good job on winning. I'd like to sign you to a contract. And Richard, not knowing who this guy was, was like, yeah, we're already signed to a contract. <laughs> and the guy was like, idiot. And the guy was like, so the guy was like, here's my business card if that falls through. And Richard took the business card and it was like, Neely Plum RCA executive. Yeah. And Richard was like, oops. Oh, I mean, the trio is kind of signed to a this kind of deal, but we're we're not. I'm not signed. You know, we can do this. And so that's how they got the <laughs> RCA thing. So RCA didn't actually see a future. I can't even get through this line because it's just so ridiculous. RCA did not see a future in jazz tuba, so the contract was short-lived. <laughs> so you don't say. You can see why I had to leave in some of this stuff, because it's just so funny and absurd. Well, yes. <laughs> yes. So in April 1966, the Carpenters were invited to audition at a session with bassist Joe Osborne, well-known for being part of the studio collective The Wrecking Crew. And though she was initially expected to be the drummer, Karen actually tried singing and impressed everyone there with her distinctive voice. Osborne signed a recording contract with her for his label, Magic Lamp Records. He was not actually interested in Richard's involvement, and so that might have thrown a little wrench because it's kind of a package deal, the two of them. Yeah. They're the Carpenters. (laughs) So Carpenter released her first solo record, Looking for Love and I'll Be Yours, in 1967 on Osborne's Magic Lamp label. Only 500 copies were pressed, and the label actually folded Mm -hmm. right after that. So that was the end of that. She graduated from Downey High School in the spring of 1967. So she's already kind of, you know, getting recognition even before she graduates. Right. She received the John Philip Sousa Band Award and enrolled as a music major at Long Beach State, performing in the college choir with her brother Richard. The choir director, Frank Pooler, said that Karen had a good voice that was 
particularly suited to Pop and actually gave her lessons in order for her to develop a three-octave range. So Karen's above average. Yeah. So in that same year, Wes Jacobs left the trio to study at Juilliard Music School, and the Carpenter siblings were keen to try out other music styles. So they're trying to branch out from the jazz. And so yeah. along with four other musicians from Cal State Long Beach, that included Gary Sims, John Bettis, and the siblings formed the group called Spectrum, which focused on a harmonious vocal sound, and they recorded many demo tapes in Osborne's garage studio, working on how to overdub the voices onto a multi-track tape. So they're kind of teaching themselves how to record their own stuff, which is kind of cool. Their first experience working together professionally was actually less successful. Gary and John both took jobs at the Coke Corner on Disneyland's Main Street, USA, and they routinely deviated from their sesh, uh, their selection of the turn-of-the-century tunes that they were asked to perform, and both were fired after four months. Many of those tapes were rejected by recording companies. The group found difficulty attracting a live following as their sound was too dissimilar from the hard rock and the psychedelic rock that were actually popular in the clubs. And they played several gigs, but then they ultimately disbanded. So, like, you know, they, 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 they had a good try at it with Spectrum, but... The sound wasn't what people what what it wasn't what people wanted to hear at the time because you have to think at at this point it is 1967. Yeah, and so we're getting into the Jimi Hendrixes, the 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 Janis Joplin. Well, yeah, as you said, like the like more of the psychedelic rock and roll and that kind of stuff. So uh, it was during this time that Karen saw a doctor about her weight. From her early years, she had been chubby, and by 17, she weighed 145 pounds, which was too much for her height of 5 feet 4 inches. Who made up that rule? Who, I don't know. Who came every up time, with that? Every time I deal with any of that, I want to punch people. She had felt that she had endured it long enough, and her doctor actually prescribed her the Stillman diet, which Karen had to drink eight glasses of water daily, avoid all fatty foods, and take some vitamins. So she hated the diet, but she adopted it rigidly. Meeting Richard and John after their performance at Disneyland, Karen would go to them to rehearsals. Following these, the group went to Coco's Coffee Shop for milkshakes, onion rings, and burgers. Coco's Coffee Shop. That still exists, doesn't it? Yeah, there's a bunch of them around L.A. Yeah, I thought so. I mean, there's, there's a bunch of them. Um... So they go to Coco's Coffee Shop for milkshakes, onion rings, and burgers, food that she normally ate. I was going to say, isn't that all the stuff that she's not supposed to eat? Yeah, from- <laughs> okay. but she didn't sway from her task of losing 25 pounds during these six months in 1967 and stayed at her new weight of around 120 pounds from then until 1973. Joe Osborne was kind of the pivot of the group's next move. With Richard now believing that his arranging skills and his sister's singing style and their overdubbed vocals were three keys to the future, Joe suggested that they return to a studio. And there, in mid-1968, they recorded all the vocals themselves. They cut three tracks and a new composition by Richard, Don't Be Afraid, and Carpenter Bettis composed Your Wonderful Parade and the acapella called Invocation. The results were terrific. That's in quotes. I don't know why. Richard decided after three sessions. They had hit a winning groove. And that was written by my mom, probably. <laughs> <laughs> K- 
Karen Sound was there. It was just a matter of the right song, and they were getting really close. He decided boldly that he and Karen would form a new sound on their own, and to hell with the fancy names. They would be the Carpenters. I'm sorry. They would be Carpenters without the as a prefix, since Richard felt that it sounded hipper and in the same style as Buffalo Springfield and Jefferson Airplane. And now, like, saying it, the Jefferson Airplane would be kind of weird. Well, yeah. Jefferson Airplane is a band name. Same with Buffalo Springfield. Carpenters. I mean, you you hear Carpenters and you want to automatically add a the. A the. You need the the. And most people, I think, when they reference the Carpenters, call they them call them the, the Carpenters. carpenters. Okay. And all. <laughs> Whatever, man. Whatever makes you feel special, I guess. Like. If he thought it would make him sound more hip, sure. I'm just gonna. I mean, it worked. We thought it would be more hip if we called ourselves LD and TJ for the podcast. <laughs> yeah, but we we adopted DJ nicknames. Nicknames. Yeah. But I mean, if he felt it would work, whatever, whatever. I mean, <laughs> and obviously it did. So there you go. Yeah, well, they've sold a million records, and me and you have. Yeah, I I can't uh, say that. We me have and you 100 have hundred listeners. Hundred listeners. Which, by the way, thanks, guys. Thank you. That makes us feel really good. <laughs> yeah, Karen still considered herself primarily a drummer who sang, and if you look at any pictures of Karen Carpenter, typically she's behind the drum set with a microphone. Yeah. Like the drums just came naturally to her. She loved them. Richard, since there was actually a lot more potential in her vocals. And there were to be a number of bumps on the way to their, their new route to success. But now as they pulled away from all the, the concepts of a band and what comes with that, luck was to smile on them. And that's what you call a copy and paste. What? Yeah. Luck was to smile on them. I copied and pasted that from somewhere. Clearly, that makes no sense. I would not say that. All right. It was actually the height... Of the Vietnam War at this time, and Richard was heavily draftable because he was a young, healthy male in America that could fight. But he had actually been granted a student deferment, which meant he could stay at the University of Long Beach. So he got really lucky and was able to stay at school, and there he heard of a new national program, which sounds a lot like a very familiar show. Let me see if you can figure out what show it sounds like. Talent scouts auditioned acts on campus, and those selected went to Hollywood to tape the show before a panel of celebrity judges, and it was broadcast nationally. What does that sound like? It's American Idol. Wait, no. This is American, American American Idol, and I'm so lucky that I actually get to work on it because it's like kind of my dream job. So when I saw this, I was like, I know that sounds like something I do. So um, <laughs> it was broadcast nationally, 
And it was actually sponsored by Colgate Palmolive and produced by the prominent radio and commercial announcer, Wendell Niles. And if they succeeded in getting on that show, the public value would be enormous. So, like, even back then, you had to have some kind of presence. And now it's, like, on social. Mm -hmm. Back then it was TV. So if you were on TV, that was, like, the be-all. That was, like, our Instagram now. Yeah, they have, well, they had a lot less shows than we have now. Well, they had a lot less channels. They had, like, three channels back then. So, yeah. Uh, with Karen at the drums and Richard at the piano, and they had a talented bassist whose last name I'm going to butcher. It's written as Bill Sisioev, so if that's wrong, I'm sorry. They recruited him specially. They auditioned at Cal State Long Beach in the spring of 1968 with a short medley of Dancing in the Streets, The Shadow of Your Smile, and there was one other song, I think, but it's not written down here. So, featuring technically difficult piano solos interjected by Richard to show off his ability along with Karen's singing talent and drum solo they easily beat out the other acts and they were accepted by your all-american college show appearing as the trio three times that year and in all the trio won $3,500 and Richard won another $3,500 for his subsequent solo performances and the public exposure was kind of ridiculous so And then another triumph followed quickly, which was at the time still a subculture of rock and pop music that was beginning to be projected in television commercials. Richard was phoned by John Bayer, who, along with his brother, had a group called The Love Generation. They were seen on this TV show, and an ad firm really liked them, so they were trying to hire them for their ads for the next Ford model coming up. Okay. Which is kind of huge. Yeah. Because that gives you even more television exposure. Well, yeah. So auditioning about 200 acts in New York and another 200 at the Sunset Sound in Hollywood, the Baylors were impressed with the energy and the musicality of Richard and Karen. And in early 1969, they were signed to a contract worth initially a gargantuan $50,000 each annually, plus a special Mustang car each. So Richard and Karen were elated at the prospect of this windfall. At last, it seemed their worth was being recognized. Still, a record deal eluded them, and for all their talent and activity, the only real recognition a popular artist would come from seeing and hearing their music, tearing up the best-selling record charts. That was the only real yardstick of success. So basically, like, it's all great that they're doing, you know, the TV show, and it's great that they're doing... The jingles and they've got this Ford contract, but if you don't have an album, well, yeah, if you don't have an album, there's nothing really. Nobody can buy anything tangible, yeah, to listen to to help you grow. All they can do is see you on the TV. Great, yeah, great. But you need something that they can actually buy. Yeah, Richard and Karen made several demo tapes and shopped them around to a couple record companies, and A and M finally signed little V carpenters to a recording contract in 1969 Karen started out as both the group's drummer and co-lead singer and she originally sang all the vocals from behind the drum set like I was saying you could see like a lot of the pictures from early on she was actually doing both vocalist and drummer at the same time right she sang most of the songs on the band's first album offering which was actually later changed 
and re- retitled to Ticket to Ride. So it was originally called Offering, and then they changed the name, and there is a reason for that. Her brother wrote 10 out of the album's 13 songs and sang on five of them. The opening and concluding tracks were sung by both the siblings in unison. Much more than just slowing down the song, Richard tailored John Lennon's strong melody to Karen's alto, and it changed the mood of the song, which was quite different due to the ballad approach. So if you know Ticket to Ride, it's like this. It's a classic Beatles song. So yeah, they made it their own. Certain chords and time signatures were changed as well, and the chart featured liberal use of Karen and Richard's overdub harmonies. And that is on the Spotify playlist if you want to check it out. It's it is it changes the tone a yeah, lot. Yeah, it really it's, does. It's, I actually, it's a sad. It, they made it sadder. Yeah. <laughs> According to one critic, the finished product virtually redefined the song. Ticket to Ride is certainly one of Karen and Richard's strongest and most innovative recordings. All that being said, the record did not become a full-fledged hit, but it still had a long chart life as it would enter and leave the charts, only to enter again, sometimes bulleted, and ultimately reached number 54 in April of 1970. Okay, considering the fact that most singles never reached the charts, Karen and Richard believed that it was not a bad showing. And then their next album, 1970's Close to You, featured two hit singles, a re-recorded version of Burt Bacharach's They Long to Be, Close to You, and We've Only Just Begun. And they peaked at number one and number two, respectively, on the Hot 100 charts. So their second album was like the big one. So they, they did a really respectable job on their sophomore album. They Long to Be Close to You had previously been written by Burt Bacharach, and his his versions, well, it's his version. And well, yeah. and I'll say that bo- I love both versions, which is kind of rare for me to like both the original and the cover. Oh, really? Yeah, I like either or. Burt Bacharach was actually with A&M at the time, and he was the one that showed early interest in the Carpenters after hearing Ticket to Ride on the radio. And invited them to join him for a number of dates in 1970. In June of that year, it would be the Burt Bacharach song, which would bring them worldwide acclaim. They Long to Be had been written by Bacharach and his partner Hal Davids some seven years earlier, which included, which was included in Dionne Warwick's third album. In addition to Karen's alluring lead vocals, the Carpenter added, "I keep saying the Carpenters, but it's written as the Carpenters." But I know oh, yes. they're going by Carpenters, so yeah. semantics. <laughs> so they added harmonies to a beautifully arranged song by Richard, who shortened the title, and in six weeks the song occupied the number one spot on the American charts, and it remained one of the bestsellers of the year and sold over three million copies worldwide. The song also gave the duo their first British success, reaching number six in autumn of 1970, and became a hit in several other countries. In March following that year, the record also won them their first Grammy. So, again, not bad for their sophomore showing. No. Uh, For Best Contemporary Vocal Performance by a Duo, Group, or Chorus. There was a second Grammy for Best New Artist of 1970, and all Close to You and the Close to You album were nominated in six categories, including Record and Album of the Year. By then, they had another million seller to their name. We've Only Just Begun, taken from their second album, Close to You, only missed the top spot by one, so it peaked at number two. The impact of We've Only Just Begun on millions of people cannot be overstated. 
written by the then-unknown team of Roger Nichols and Paul Williams, expressly for a television ad campaign for the Crocker Bank, a California concern. The song caught Richard's attention, who felt that with the right arrangement, the song could be a hit. The fact that We've Only Just Begun is a wedding song did not make a difference to him one way or the other, but certainly did to countless couples planning to get married following the year of the record's release. We've Only Just Begun became the wedding song of a generation. That is not an overstatement. In addition, Karen and Richards, Nichols and Williams, were bombarded with requests from yearbook committees asking permission to use We've Only Just Begun as the motto for the graduating classes. Additionally, Richards' interpretation of the song would have quite an impact on the way that many ballads to come were arranged from the voicing of the piano in the intro of the first verse to the entrance of vocals and strings and the brass they used in the bridge. Joining Close to You in the Grammy Hall of Fame, we've only just begun for years has been considered Karen and Richard's signature song. I fully agree with that statement. Like, that's... Yeah. yeah. The album was enjoying enormous success, spreading well over a year on the U.S. album charts in addition to the two hit singles... It may have, it may, it, it included many more memorable tracks, among them Help, Baby It's You, Mr. Gruder, and Reason to Believe. In 1971, there were three more hugely successful singles, all of which became million sellers, before, for all we know, had been featured in the film Lovers and Other Strangers with music by uh, Fred Carlin and lyrics by Arthur James and Rob Wilson. Actually, pseudonyms for Arthur Griffith and Rob Royer of the, the group Bread, who went on to win an Oscar for Best Film Song of 1970. The Carpenters version went to number three on the American charts and soon followed by the similarly successful, and this is like one of my personally, my, my personal favorite songs by the Carpenters because I love the Carpenters. That's why I was, I think that's why I probably did like 23 Pages because I just you don't I love say. them so much. Rainy Days and Mondays, written as as was We've Only Just Begun by Roger Nichols and Paul Williams during the last week of May 1971. While Rainy Days and Mondays was rapidly climbing the charts, Richard and Karen were videotaping their songs and sketches for an eight-week summer replacement series entitled Make Your Own Kind of Music. And that was brought to my attention by by my husband as that's actually a mama's and the papa song so oh yeah yeah make your own kind of music yeah make your own kind of music was actually so it was actually scheduled to air in lieu of the not show the summer series was supposed to be kind of a cross with (laughs) laughing and sesame street whatever it was management should have known better than to persuade karen and richard to take any part the Carpenters were too big of a name to be associated with a summer replacement series. To make matters worse, although it was considered to be their show, Richard and Karen were co-billed with somewhat lesser names and add to the fact that the show was simply not that good. The result was that Make Your Own Kind of Music left an understandably unfavorable impression with television executives as far as the Carpenters were concerned while contributing nothing to their record sales. So basically they went in on this thing. It was and- a waste. Yeah, Basically. it was a, it was a total waste of their their time and energy. Of their effort. Yeah. A few months later, it was the turn of Superstar, which is also one of my favorite songs. By that, really, all of the Carpenter songs are my favorite <laughs> Carpenter song. 
And that reached the number two spot on the American charts, but but backed with, for all we know, it also brought the pair their third British success, reaching number 18. Superstar is considered by many to be the ultimate Carpenters track. I agree with them. With its haunting melody, offbeat lyrics, heartfelt reading by Karen, and Grammy-nominated arrangement by Richard. So again, they get another Grammy nomination for this one. There was another album, too, simply called Carpenters, and it resulted in further chart success in both Britain and America, where it won them yet another Grammy, again for the best performance by duo, group, or chorus. So Karen didn't actually drum on every Carpenters recording. She's actually only the feature drummer on Ticket to Ride and Now and Then, except for Jambalaya. And according to Hal Blaine, Karen played mostly on the album cuts, and he played on most of the studio sessions where she didn't play the drum herself. So half and half. Half performance, half album kind of thing. And the duo was happy for Blaine to take the role in the studio as he was a respected session musician. And it was easier to record Carpenter's guide vocals without spilling onto the drum mics. So technically he just knew how to like pull back on drumming within the session so it didn't spill over into the cans into the microphone. Right. Only made in America, Karen provided percussions on those good old dreams in tandem with Paulina DeCosto and played drums on the song When It's Gone, It's Just Gone in unison with, I'm going to mess this name up, Laurie Laden as well as drumming. Karen played bass guitar on two songs, All of My Life and Eve, under Osborne's guidance. Because she was just five inches, five feet, four inches tall, it was difficult for people in the audience to see her behind her kit. And after reviews complained that the group had no focal point in live shows, Richard manager Sherwin Bass persuaded her to stand at a microphone to sing the band's hits, while another musician would actually play the drums for her okay so while another musician played the drums former disney musketeer cubby o'brien served as the band's other drummer and he did that for many many years she initially struggled in live performances singing solo as she actually felt more secure behind the drum kit which i found really interesting because you don't necessarily equate her with the drums you you only don't equate her with the drums because they didn't want you to equate her with the drums once their careers picked up so but it's still very difficult for her because she is initially a drummer and she feels comfortable back there but you also have to think about what she was going through mentally because she's already at this point in the throes of anorexia or nervosa whether she knows it or not and she might have been using the drums to kind of protect herself well yeah she can hide behind so they they do hit a major stride and then and this begins their long and incredibly successful careers Uh, among their numerous television credits they had appearances on tv shows like american bandstand the tonight show with johnny carson the ed sullivan show and the carol burnett show So in 1971, the Carpenters were performing all over the world, and in London, they packed the Royal Albert Hall during their first European tour. In America, there were nothing but sellout performances at prestigious venues such as the Hollywood Bowl, which we now know is 97 years old. And in Japan, they performed the first of what would be many, many sellout concerts. They were actually super famous in Japan. The first half of 1972 actually saw... 
two more American charted successes with songs that were arranged by Richard but written by others. Hurting Each Other had originally been recorded by Ruby and the Romantics, and It's Gonna Take Some Time had been written by Carol King and Tony Stern, and both songs took the Carpenters to the American Top 20, reaching number 2 and 12, respectively. Carol King is a huge name to have on as a writing credit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> just, just a little, just a little songwriter that everyone should know. Yes, I still remember the first time I listened to Tapestry. God, talk about it! Was a, like, amazing career-defining album. Oh, I miss that out. I need to listen to that one again. It was going to be some months before their next British hit single. However, with that honor reserved for "Goodbye to Love," uh, written by Richard and Bettis, with the help of a splendid Richard Carpenter arrangement. Karen's Karen's Faultless Reading and Tony Fluso's Fluso's? Fluto's. It starts with a P and it has a U in it. He has an amazing guitar solo in it. It first climbed rapidly up the American charts reaching number seven at its peak. Goodbye to Love was then released on a double-sided single in Britain together with I Won't Last a Day Without You, another Paul Williams and Roger Nicholas song. The single reached number nine on the British charts. Then preceding four singles were all culled from the duo's fourth album, A Song for You, considered as uh, by many, including Karen and Richard, to be their finest, including as well as there were their, their – do you know the song Top of the World? I'm on the – Top of, of the world, world looking down, down on creation, and the only explanation I can find. Yeah, okay. And blessed, blessed the beast and children from Stanley Kramer's film of almost the same name, blessed the beast and the children. I don't know how that's almost. Oh, there's a the Karen Carpenter and the. So it was the Carpenter's song was called. Bless the Beast and Children, and the movie was called Bless the Beast and the Children. Totally different, see? This track was one of Karen and Richard's best that was released in the U.S. on the flip side of Superstar and got quite a bit of play in its own right. All told, the song for you contained an impressive six hits as well as standout tracks such as Flat Baroque, Piano Picker, and the title song. Yet the group still remain more popular in America than with British audiences, which is weird because they're, you know, getting really good play in Britain. In early 1973, there was to be another American hit, the million-selling Sing, before renewed British success with another Carpenter's Bet composition. Yesterday Once More finally gave the Carpenter's British career the boost that it needed, and in mid-1973, the song raced up the British charts, peaking at number two, the same position that it had reached in America, and higher than that reached by all of the other Carpenters' previous British singles. So in Britain, it is a wildly popular song. It would also provide them with yet another million seller and prove to be a phenomenal success in Japan. And that's major because the, the Japanese musical market for an American act is... The success is ridiculous. Yeah. So it was it was a really big deal that it was huge in Japan. And the song looked at the craze for musical nostalgia that was prevalent in America at the time. It would have been taken from the Carpenters. As e if nostalgia isn't prevalent Oh, now. God. I'm not. I'm, I'm, we're, we're not going to get off on that tangent, no. but I'm just saying it's been 
relevant like we talked about it last week with <laughs> peter tork and the monkeys we talked about it you know we're not going to get off on a tangent we already went off on a we, tangent. we, we did go off on a we, tangent we went already. off on a tangent that's so bad that we're actually we, just going to release it as a short set yeah <laughs> and, and call it a day and and but, be done <laughs> but i just wanted for this episode to put it to point out that nostalgia is we're aware that this is still a current thing it's a thing in every generation but right now especially yeah moving on yeah <laughs> so yesterday once more had been taken from the carpenters equally successful album now and then which incorporated a highly unusual idea the whole one side was made up of eight classic 1960s pop songs presented as a radio show skillfully arranged and produced by you guessed it richard uh, richard and tony peluso i'm just gonna call him peluso because i don't know how to say his last name guest as a disc jockey another carpenter bettis composition top of the world shot right to the top of the american charts and number five in britain and gave them their third million seller of 1973 so here's a fun fact in may 1973 the carpenters accepted an invitation to perform at the white house for president richard m nixon at a dinner in honor of West German Chancellor Willy Brandt. That's cool. That is cool. Mm -hmm. After the release of Now and Then in 1973, the album tends to have a have the Carpenters. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> okay. Oh. After the release of Now and Then in 1973, the albums tend to have Karen singing more and drumming less, and she actually becomes the focal point of all the records and the live performances. Manager Sherwin Bass later said that she was the one that people wanted to watch so as you can imagine at this time she she's got to be feeling weird to be pulled out from her drum kit and being the spotlight kind of being thrown onto her yeah well i'm sure richard is super excited about this yeah so karen's popularity often confounded critics who accused the music of being bland and saccharine however karen was praised for her control and sense of pitch and her subtle personal expressions that she introduced into the melody and their music focused on ballads mid-tempo and pop and despite the opinion of critics was extremely popular and you can tell that by the million selling albums and you know their presence on the charts in 1975 the carpenters were forced to cancel a european tour because karen was far too weak to perform and no one knew that at the time that Karen was suffering from anorexia nervosa, a mental illness characterized by the compulsive dieting to the point of starvation. In 1976, Karen moved out of her parents' house and into a condo of her own. And this is one of those like weird balance things where she had been living with her parents, but they haven't been prevalent in her life. And her mom certainly favored Richard over her. And Karen knew that. But when she tried to move out, there was this huge fight where they basically wouldn't trust her to live on her own. So she fought and fought. And then finally, she got a condo of her own. In mid 1976, a deal between the Carpenters and the ABC network was announced. And on. December 8th, God, this is so 70s. On December 8th, 1976, the Carpenters' very first TV special, that was the name of the TV special, the Carpenters' very first TV special. Oh, geez. With guest John Denver, because he would go to the opening of an envelope in the 70s. And Victor Borge aired to outstanding ratings, placed number six for the week. And as a result, a deal for more specials were offered. And by 1980, they had completed five specials for ABC. So Richard wasn't as fond of doing the specials as Karen was, who was clearly the star and enjoyed the experience of making them. He feels that while still being 
palpable to the average viewer. The specials should have taken more of the musical high roads, such as those of Barbara Streisand and Barry Manilow, emphasizing Karen's remarkable voice, rather than including so many comedy sketches and canned laughter. I can see where he's coming from on that, though. Richard firmly believed that one of the reasons Karen is relatively underrated as a great singer today is due to the sweet square image that was propagated by the record label management and their public relations firms, and that was one that he was battling. With little success, though, throughout their career, Richard believes that the specials, well-executed and successful though they were, didn't change that image. So this whole time he was trying to prove that they weren't squares. With the song A Kind of Hush delivered to A&M for June... 1976 release it was time for karen and richard to embark on one of the first postponed tours uh remember they had to cancel the the european tour because she was too weak right and this one was in japan where they performed 21 concerts in a 27 day period in march and april all of them were huge successes and karen and richard and all concerned left for home a little bit spent but happy that it had all worked out so well so they were pleased with how that tour came out even though it was postponed initially after completing the U.S. summer tour and wrapping the first TV special, the Carpenters left for Europe and the second postponed tour. Another success, this tour culminated with a record-breaking run at the London Palladium, where an album live at the London Palladium was actually recorded and mixed by Karen and Richard at Air Studios, starting at about the third night into the engagement, and then it was released within a couple of days of the Carpenters' departure. So during the tour, it was becoming increasingly apparent to Richard and many around him that his use of prescription sleeping pills that he had been taking before bed sporadically since late 70, 1971 were no longer sporadic, but now habitual. The medication, Quaalude, had been prescribed to him by a family doctor who quite correctly said that if taken as directed, the pill was safe and effective. Richard, not being a party animal, but being a bit naive, had never even heard of Quaaludes, which was quite a hit with some of the younger generation on the party circuit. Richard soon found out why. And yet he wants to claim he wasn't a square. So apparently a common side effect, I've actually never taken Quaaludes, but apparently a common side effect was euphoria to Richard, who had never smoked through high school and college and had not had his mood altered by so much more as a beer. This proved to be quite the experience. I can only imagine. <laughs> All seemed well and good for Richard for the first few years as he took them in limited qualities, quantities only before bed and enjoyed the release at the end of some very trying days. The trouble was, of course, that nothing is forever, and as the years passed by, he built up a tolerance and ended up taking more and more. By late 1976, it was affecting him so badly at times that before he knew it, he was actually going to have to face up to the problems, which would mean more time off from the band. So the Carpenters had frequently canceled tour dates, and then they actually had to stop touring altogether after September 4th, 1978, a concert at the MGM Grand in Los, An- uh, Los Angeles, <laughs> Las Vegas. While Richard sought treatment for his addiction at a Kansas facility in early 1979, Karen, who was currently the age of 30, made a solo album with producer Phil Ramone entitled Karen Carpenter, which she actually dedicated to her brother Richard. I find that really sweet that even on her her solo stuff, she still got Richard in her heart. The choice of a more adult-oriented and disco dance tempo material represented an effort to retool her image. Arguably her best performance is a song on the album by 
Paul Jaraba and Jay Asher called Something's Missing in My Life. Many who have heard the work feel it truly relates to Karen's struggles and the depths of her feelings. The song remains unmixed and without any strings. The resulting product met a tempered response from Richard and A&M executives, and in early 1980s, Karen wavered in her dedication to the project, and the whole album was shelved by A&M executive Herb Alpert. Oh. Her fans finally got a taste of the album in 1989 when one of the tracks, If I Had You, which was actually remixed by Richard, turned up on a compilation album, Love Lines. It was also released as a single, making number 18 on the American Adult Contemporary Chart. 16 years later, in 1996, the entire album featuring mixes as approved by Karen and one unmixed bonus track actually finally saw release. So also in 1980, Karen got to be that, you know, housewife that she always wanted to be and married a real estate developer, Thomas J. Burris. So this is where it gets kind of conflicting because in early interviews, Karen actually showed no interest in actually getting married or dating, believing that a relationship wouldn't survive the constant touring, adding, as long as we're on the road most of the time, I will never marry. So she always wanted to get married and have a family, and, and, and but now... Well, but she had, I mean, like you said early on in the, in the, in the episode, she didn't want to balance work and home life you know she did believe in if she was gonna be a wife that her place would be at home yeah in 1980 she performed a medley of standards in a duet with ella fitzgerald on the carpenters television program music 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 so in 1976 this is rocking it back just a little bit she said that the music business had made it really hard to meet people and that she refused to just marry someone for the sake of it Carpenter admitted to Olivia Newton-John that she longed for a happy marriage and a family, and she later dated some notable men, including Mike Kerb, Tony Danza, Terry Ellis, Mark Harmon, Steve Martin, and Alan Osman. And after a whirlwind romance, she married real estate developer Thomas James Burris on August 31st, 1980, in the Crystal Room of the Beverly Hills Hotel. Burris, divorced with an 18-year-old son, was nine years her senior— and a new song performed by the Carpenters at the ceremony, Because We Are In Love, was released in 1981. And uh, they ended up settling in Newport Beach, which is a beautiful area. Yeah. Carpenter des- desperately wanted children, but Burris had undergone a vasectomy and refused to get an operation to reverse it. Their marriage did not survive this agreement and ended after 14 months. That's not the worst part about this, though. Burris was living beyond his means, borrowing up to 50 thousand dollars at a time from his wife whoa yeah to the point where she only had stocks and bonds left and carpenter's friends also reported that he was abusive toward her often being impatient and they added that she remained fearful when he would occasionally lose his temper so all around not a good situation not a good situation at all karen common A close friend recounted one incident where she and Carpenter went to their normal hangout. I know this place, the Hamburger Hamlet. So they went to Hamburger Hamlet and Carpenter appeared to be distant and emotional, sitting not at their regular table, but in the dark and wearing large dark sunglasses, unable to eat and crying. And according to Common, 
the marriage was the straw that broke the camel's back. It was absolutely the worst thing that could have ever happened to her. In September of 1981, Carpenter revised her will and left her marital home and its contents to Burris, but left everything else to Richard and her parents, which included her fortune estimated at five or ten million dollars. I mean, it's not really clear on that, which is now about 14 to $28 million in 2018 money. If someone wants to give me $28 million, I'm okay with that as well. Yeah, no joke. Two months later, following an argument after a family dinner in a restaurant, Carpenter and Burris broke up. Carpenter filed for divorce on October 28, 1982, while she was in Lenox Hill Hospital. Karen was supposed to sign the papers finalizing her divorce on the day she died. Aww. In 1981, Richard and Karen went back into the recording studio to record Made in America. It included their hit single, Touch Me When We're Dancing. After the release of Made in America album, which turned out to be their last, the Carpenters returned to the stage and did some promotional tours, including an appearance for the BBC program Nationwide. So that's a huge way to tour. (laughs) Yes. However... Karen was unable to shake her depression and eating disorder, and after realizing that she needed help, Karen sought treatment in New York in 1982. And that's where we're going to pick up next week with Karen Carpenter's story, and we're going to give a detailed timeline of what actually happened to her during her years uh, battling with anorexia nervosa starting at a very early age. So that pretty much is going to wrap up this episode. We got through the first part of a two-parter. Thank you guys so much for checking out the first part of this episode. The next episode will be the continuation, the Karen Carpenter story part two. So we're still doing our ratings and reviews contest. So if you want to jump on that train, make sure to leave us a rating and a review by March 31st. And if we pick your review, then you'll have a chance to win one of two books, which is either A Sick Life by T. Boz which was for our Left Eye episode, or the book on Roy Orbison, Only the Lonely. And if you've already left a rating or review, you have already been entered. Also, if you're feeling fancy and your pockets are heavy, you can head over to our Patreon at patreon.com backslash rockandrollheaven. You can find us on Twitter at rockandrolllt. You can find us on Facebook at rockandrollheavenpod. Our Instagram is rockandrollheavenlt. You can email us at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com and If I talk too fast, you can find all this information in our show notes. That's about it for this week. Keep rocking in the free world. Good night, TJ. Night, LB. Go to sleep. Yeah. Why do birds suddenly appear every time you are near? Just like me. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 